Is this in your eyes or is it all right? It's all right? Okay. Yeah. That's all right? Okay. The talk tonight is about um, longing for freedom and our ambivalence about liberation and liberation. If you um, do long for freedom, I think that you are very lucky because um, a lot of people kill that longing inside that, you know, it's like we can shut down so much that we don't know that we're longing for home, um, a deeper home than the kind of spiritual groundlessness uh, that we often live in. And the Buddha called uh, this spiritual longing or spiritual urgency samvega, it's S-O-M-V-E-G-A. Uh, and, and there are uh, ways in which he considered this very, very important, this spiritual urgency. And it, it's really what wakes us up from our complacency. For example, one of the guardian meditations that is taught is reflecting on death. And it's not meant to be like a morbid <laughs> reflection, but really a very helpful reflection to give us that um, little nudge. It's like a nudge to just like kind of remember that we actually, you know, have this longing and we don't want to live asleep at the wheel. And certainly we don't want to use all our time for other things. So I like to think of um, the ups and downs of a retreat as uh, worth, worth it. Like it's like worth it to go through what we go through to find this deeper contentment. It's like a contentment that's not dependent on pleasure or getting what we want. And it's, it's um, when you think about, you know, the pains we have in our body from sitting still or walking, sit, walk, the, the discipline it takes to do the practice and not maybe getting what we want to eat or the sleeplessness that can happen or missing home or facing the unknown, you know, working with what, you know, we don't know or that willingness to grow beyond where we have ever been before. These, these, this all, all requires a kind of um, ability at times to touch into this spiritual longing or spiritual urgency. I am going to read a poem, a haiku by Basho, and uh, there's a bird a, just a bird name in it that um, it's called Hototo Jisu. Hototo Jisu. And I think of the sound of this bird probably similar to a wood thrush or a hermit thrush or, you know, the most beautiful bird song you know uh, might be a song sparrow, but whatever it is that you love, this is uh, the most beloved sounding bird in Japan. Even in Kyoto, I long for Kyoto, a hototo jisu. 
Even in Kyoto, I long for Kyoto, a hototo chisu. So you could say, even in Galilee, I long for Galilee, a chickadee. <laughs> And it's really, if you think about this, it's so deep, the way that we tend to um, be so homesick wherever we really are. You know, that sometimes it's that sense of that longing that we have even when we are home, in our physical home, or whatever, whatever it is. It's, that, it's so um, ironic that... What is being said is that without our spiritual home, we don't feel at home. And there is a way in which I, I see, you know, on subtle levels how there'll be times where I'm just sort of withholding. It's like a withholding, a complete being here. Like a, a little, that it can be the slightest waiting. Or, for example, if you have a very clear blue sky, and one little cloud passes in front of the sun, and you know how you can feel cool or cold, or you feel that the power of that one little cloud. So there's just one little disappointment, or like just it just isn't quite good enough, you know. And it's like, oh, I wish there was like something else besides the salad bar. <laughs> <laughs> so many things there, right? You know, it's like you've got carrots and cucumbers and peppers and coleslaw and, you know, corn and green beans. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And yet you can walk in there and go... <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. And this is what he's saying. Even in Galilee, I long for Galilee. There's just something about that longing. And it's that inability for us to just be able to say, oh, disappointment. You know, that, that disappointment is really part of the practice. A lot of it is being able to say, oh, dissatisfied. Oh, wanting something else. And that that's what's predominant. So instead of talking ourselves out of like saying, oh, there's so many, you know, there's so many starving people in the world. You know, just bear down and eat it. <laughs> just, you know, it doesn't often help. It's just you sit there eating your cottage cheese, you know, and it's like you think, and really what we missed was the disappointment or the wanting something else. And, and accepting that that's part of being human, that we tend to have this self-centered thinking. And if I always think it's funny because that's often described as um, selfing. But what else would it be doing? I mean, what else would our thinking be doing, really? You know, when you think of that the, the we're designed, if you think of how many millions of years we've been designed, it's like we're really designed to, like, look out for ourselves. And there's that overlay of, like, well, I shouldn't be needy, or I shouldn't be having self-centered thinking. And that just gets much more into self-hatred and hopelessness, rather than going, oh, you know, how many did we've been here five days and yeah, it'd be cool if they wheeled a whole other thing out and there were croissants <laughs> and, you know all their croissants and <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> That's my French really good. I can say that really good. Je veux I got that one down. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, they're not here today, you know. And we can, it's okay if we can be petty or self-pity or, you know, it's just like that is how the mind can be sometimes. And if we put that overlay of should, then there's always going to be a backfiring of doubt. You know, rather than being able to just say, this is how it is. And there's always a deeper place of contentment. If you let the disappointment come and go, you're usually okay.
there was a, a movie by Woody Allen, I think it was last year, Midnight in Paris, that he, um, the gist of the movie is that there's, a, there's another actor playing him, and uh, a young actor is playing his kind of personality, and he's in Paris, and he longs for this time of um, the, the 20s, I think it is, where Gertrude Stein lived, and there, and um, Hemingway, and Faulkner, and uh, it's like he's, he's wanting to be a writer like them, and not a script writer. It's hilarious. It's like he's constantly making fun of himself in this movie, that script writers really aren't very good, and he wants to write a novel. And so he falls in love with this woman from that time period. He goes back in time. He's there. He's meeting all these people. It's all exciting. And then um, she actually rather live in the time period before. <laughs> so somehow they get magically transported to La Belle Epoque, where, you know, it's like, like, you know, a whole generation before. And she decides she wants to stay there. And he's like, what do you mean the ballet club? You know, the best time was the Gertrude Stein and Hemingway in this whole period. And, and she decides to stay. And he goes back to that time period, and he, 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 he's, a, he's never the same. He, can't, he realizes that it's ridiculous. He's, he goes back to the present moment. And it's quite moving, just that sense of like how sometimes we feel like we're in the wrong time period, or you know we're in the wrong whatever, the wrong family, you know, <laughs> whatever culture, whatever. You know, it's like uh, you know sometimes it's like well, maybe forty thousand. I always think it has to go way back. Maybe forty thousand years ago would have been better, where we were just painting with ochre and you know, in the cave, just making nice paintings, or, you know, just that way we can do that, it's amazing. And it, it's part, again, of our nature. And then it's being able to say, well, but actually, in some ways, it's like, well, tough luck, kid. <laughs> it's 2012. You know, it's like you got to kind of realize, oh, yeah, where you're actually, you are here. And what are we going to do about it? One... Um, year when I lived in northern Maine, I went down to a, a conference in southern Maine, which seemed like a big trip uh, <laughs> in those days. It was 1973. Uh, and uh, I went to see a speaker named Dick Gregory. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a, an African-American um, anti-Vietnam War person who was in jail. Uh, fasting against the war. He'd been arrested for demonstrating. Um, and if you remember, he used to be quite large, and he lost a lot of weight in the process of this long fast of uh, protesting. And he actually almost died. And he had just come out from this hunger strike and came to speak at this place. Uh, and my memory of it was it was like he, he seemed so ethereal. And so light. It was almost like there was no earth element. And it felt like he was just kind of flying back and forth on the stage. But what I remember so clearly was this. He kept saying, you have no idea of the power of your mind. And it was just over and over, you know, in that very rhythmic, beautiful way that he spoke. It's like it was similar to Martin Luther King. He just kept saying, you have no idea of the power of your mind. You have got to get in touch with the power of your mind. And it had such a big impact on me. Just, wow, oh yeah, you know. <laughs> he just gave it to us, the, the responsibility to um, find that, to get in touch with it. So when we talk about, at the beginning of sittings, inclining our attention toward kindness and making the intention to be kind and then letting go and seeing what happens. That is that. That is calling up your own kindness intelligence and trusting that it's already there, that you have that power to be kind 
but that you can't make it happen, that there's a power in the intention and there's, an empo there's a great power in continuing to make the intention without control. That's what we're doing, part of what we're doing. The great teacher Srinas Sargadatta up-leveled that. He said, um, above all, <laughs> above all, approach yourself with reverence. You know, I feel a little hesitant to start a retreat by saying, approach yourself with reverence, because I think most people would say, yeah, right. You know, it's like, reverence, are you kidding me? You know, kindness is just a little bit less um, reverent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that word, reverent, but really, when we think about the times when we feel the most grace, there's a kind of sacredness that we feel inside and out. It includes us. And there is always that sense of a kind of reverence that's so deep. So it's possible to actually incline your attention toward this reverence, to approach your, your life, your heart, your mind, your body with reverence. He said that, uh, Serena Zargadatta said that self-hatred is a grievous error. Those are not light words. A grievous error. Error. Self-hatred. And it's very important to ask ourselves, it's like, why, why is it so predominant? And it's a defense. We prefer self-hatred than being vulnerable. And it's something to really investigate. It's like, check it out. It's like, we can ha be having the most miserable self-hatred attack, but if we just asked ourselves to just be vulnerable, the reason why it's preferable is because it's, it's preferable than that fear of the nothingness that we might feel if we spent a few seconds not knowing what's going to happen next. So it's the not knowing what's going to happen next and kind of sometimes expecting the worst. That self-hatred completely um, prevents us from seeing that clearly. So if I'm in a self-hatred attack, which is one of my karmic knots, a deep karmic knot, if I have enough mindfulness, I'll say, Michelle, this is a defense. What are you not willing to feel? Oh, vulnerable. Minor detail. <laughs> you know, really, it's just like, and it's so helpful when I remind myself of that, and then I just check it out. And I see, oh, yeah, this is what I don't want to feel this. <coughs> so when we think of the words of respect and reverence or kindness, it's one of the things I think is so interesting is the whole way that um, I, was, I was introduced to bowing. I was introduced to bowing by it not being introduced. <laughs> and I would just, you know, these amazing Asian teachers were coming to this place. I was on staff and um, people were bowing, but no one talked about it. No one asked us to do it if we didn't want to. Uh, and I look, honestly couldn't imagine it myself, coming from a strong, um, pretty intense Catholic background. Like I, if somebody had asked me to genuflect, I would have easily, you know, but the whole bowing thing looked a little bit too weird to me. And, um, but I started just experimenting with it. And recently I had a, a woman in Honolulu who, who was born in China, who lives in Honolulu, uh, and some years ago, she had come into a retreat and came up to me and asked me if she had to bow. And I said, no. And she said, are you sure? And I said, really, if you don't want to bow, don't bow. And she came to a retreat this um, last month in Honolulu. Uh, and she came up to me with little tears coming down her cheeks. And she said, I am so grateful 
that you didn't ask me to bow because in my, with my background, I needed to be totally rebellious against this. You know, I was raised with it. I didn't want to do it. And um, she said that she found her way with it, which is similar to what happened for me. It's like I just started playing with it. And she described how she bowed. And it, it came right out of the text, like what she felt like when she bowed. It was amazing. Um, so I'll, I'll go into that in a, in a minute. So, this, the, in, in, usually in any, in any culture, there is a way that we will acknowledge something about something sacred with each other. So, the, like the, I often use the description, the word goodbye, it's actually slang, and it means in English, may God be with you. And that used to be what, in English, people would actually say. And it's very interesting how, and then in Asia, there'd be that sense of the hands in Anjali. It's just, it's, it's, it's a reverence. It's, it's the same thing. It's like bowing to the, whatever we want to say, the sacred, the divine. Um, so there's that simple Anjali gesture, which is, it's a reverence. Um, and then the full bow is meant to be <laughs> the 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 um, in the Pali dictionary. If you look it up, it means a full offering of your body and mind and heart. It's quite beautiful. It's like if you offer metta, you it's like an offering of your being, and it's it's kind of like a surrender. So when you place your forehead on the earth. It means you're really connecting to the earth, and you're offering. You know, it's like you're offering your life to total reverence. It's it's quite beautiful, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail on this. But I remember when I first started trying to bow, I I wasn't raised with the Buddha statue, and it's not a um, karma for me to feel really inspired by it. So. There were flowers always on the altar, and flowers were what pretty much, wildflowers pretty much saved my life when I was a kid. So it was really easy for me to bow to the flowers. And I started learning about that. Like, I don't know if you noticed, but when I came in here tonight, I really, it was so natural for me to bow to the fire. It's, it's just, it's thoughtless. I just I don't go through the thought process, and I love to bow to the Buddha. But it was so funny to watch that. Um, it's so natural, easy, effortless. Um, so wherever, if we have anything that we do feel reverent for, it doesn't mean you have to make a gesture. But it's just starting to find that place of at least appreciation. It could be with our food. So the bowing, you know, you bow, if you do bow over time, you start to see, I mean, I remember bowing through my sister's car accident or another sister's cancer and death or you know, you bow through, you know, my great niece's, you know, uh, birthday party once that was so happy for her. You know, you bow through all these places in your life. You bow through sleepiness. You bow through um, doubt. And you find that that is helpful, that you're saying, oh, <laughs> it's okay. It, whatever's happening is okay on this deeper level. There's a Zen teacher that says, um, sometimes I bow to the dust. You know, and it, it's, again, it doesn't, it has nothing to do with an outward gesture, but it is, it has something to do with this word reverence. Reverence, right. Lipo 
was a great, <laughs> great poet in China in the late 700s. And there's a poem that has been translated so differently, but I think I will read the um, poem that you probably will recognize the easiest, or the translation that you would recognize the easiest. It's called Alone Looking at the Mountain, translated by Sam Hamo. The birds have vanished down the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. It's so, it's what they call empty. <laughs> you know, it's so, there's that little, the little self has disappeared, yeah? The birds have vanished down the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. So I read a recent translation, and the name of this mountain is called Reverence Mountain. And so isn't translation fascinating? It's like, this guy, it might not sound as easy to understand, but, but the translation is actually, you could say pure, but more it's not quite as clear as this other one's easy to understand. This sitting at Reverence Mountain. The flocks have flown high up and gone. A single cloud fades into emptiness. In meditation, endlessly, we too. Then only the mountain of reverence. <laughs> So few words, so, so different, so different a translation. But what I love about both of them is that sense of the quiet and the sense of that little self disappearing. And then particularly in this one, it's like reverence is really often what's left. This is one more by Li Po. It's his fam most famous poem in China. But it has a bow in it, so I thought. And he's very old when he wrote this. Before the bed, bright moonlight, I took it for frost on the ground. I raised my head to think of the moon and then bowed my head to dream of home. Srina Zaragadatta said that all talk about silence is noisy. <laughs> One of my root, my root guru, Deepama, uh, was this amazing, amazing being from India, uh, and she had this amazing power to bless. She had this metta that, you know, she would bless an airplane, she would bless a person, you know, she would bless anything. The metta was just complete and powerful, but her wisdom was really complete and powerful. And when I was younger, when I first met her, she would always tell me, don't be so social. And I'd be like, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the ambivalence, right, about being quiet. It was like I'd work all day, you know, and then I'd be like trying to take care of her. And she'd say, don't be so social. And be like, oh, you know, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, where am I going to find this quiet time? Um, but as I've lived long enough, I'd see, I see that she's so right. And we, you know, it's like there's, it's not that if we live a worldly life that we don't have so much competing for our time. 
But I've seen over and over that, again, that if I'm living a busy household life, the one thing that often has to go is too much socialness, or you're never going to get some quiet time. And that can be hard, and it doesn't have to be so much that one is, one doesn't have to be isolated, but certainly one has to value some quiet time. It's just, it's, this, is, this is just how it goes. And I, I think that um, a few years back when I was in Burma, the teacher at the monastery that we teach a retreat at for three weeks, his name is Sayadaw Ulakana, uh, and he was very sick. So he couldn't even walk up the steps where he would give a Dhamma talk or give interviews, and all the yogis would have to go down to like the room next to his bedroom for interviews. and. Um, Dhamma talks. So he would just get up out of bed and come into the room. Uh, and the last day of the retreat, I was sitting listening to his Dhamma talk and I felt this different, it's like a breath of fresh air came in the room. <coughs> and uh, I opened my eyes and I didn't know this, but it was Sayadaw's teacher. And no one called him and told him that he was sick, but there he was to kind of give him some support. Uh, so he just sat there as Sayadaw gave his Dharma talk. Because he came right in the middle. This is, Burma's just like that, you know. The car rolls up, they come in, nobody says anything. You know, everything just keeps going on. And, um, and then Sayadaw, when he finished his talk, he looked like a little kid. He just jumped up and he bowed to this guy and he was so happy. Like, I can't even tell you how simple that happiness was, but how joyful he was. And then we all left and we were breaking, the, the yogis were breaking silence that day. And after three weeks of silence, it can be very loud. It's, when people start talking, they can't stop. So it, and it's like this dining hall is just filled with this loud laughter and talking. And um, I was just about to go up to go have some tea, because they were on eight precepts. They weren't eating uh, dinner, so this was their first dinner. And somebody came up to me, and a Burmese person, and said, um, Sayadaw's teacher is willing to see you all, if you'd like. And it's like, well, that's a no-brainer, right? You know? <laughs> and so, of course, and, he, and this person told me, you know, by the way, he's fully enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, Here, we're not supposed to talk about it. <laughs> like, we're not supposed to talk about it. It's fully like, you're like, great, okay. <laughs> so I walk in this room and it's like pandemonium. It's so loud. And I'm like, hey, guys. <laughs> this teacher wants to see us. And, and they're like, it took me so long to get it quiet enough. And then. Um, I'm like, we have to go now. So people hadn't even finished eating, and we're, you know, they had, hadn't eaten for three weeks at night. And it was so funny, you know. It's like, again, that ambivalence between, but we're just breaking silence, we're just eating. And I'm like, we gotta go. So we headed up there, and all tap, 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 chatter, 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 loud, loud, loud. And I was like, wow, this is intense. So we go up to this room, and we're all in this teeny room. And people are still talking. And I was really tired. You know, there's, I do this humanitarian aid work there, plus that course. And I'm just kind of like barely able to sit up. And uh, I'm just, time's going on, and everyone's talking. And I think, hmm. And then I said, oh, OK, guys. I said, I think maybe we need to be quiet. And so it took a few minutes. It, it all just started to get quiet. And the moment, I'm not kidding, the moment it got quiet, there was this little curtain. It was kind of like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> there was this little curtain, and out he comes. He was just waiting until everybody was quiet. He was very quiet. Fully enlightened beings are very quiet. <laughs> 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 it was so funny. 
crying. And it was just like, oh my God, like, this guy is so friggin' quiet. You know, I mean, it's like, it's beyond our comprehension. <laughs> it was so funny. You know, and that's just like, even when I went to say goodbye to him, it's just like, it's like the lightest bird walking by. There's just like this, this quiet. There's, there's no more aversion and attachment. There's no more identification. It's just like when he's walking, he's walking by. Mm -hmm. Nothing sticky. When he's walking out of, to sit down in front of you, he's just walking by. And I, I remember that morning. Um, I When I go there, I never feel like I can bring enough presents for people. I mean, Burma will change now that Things are changing, but they they just had nothing. So I would be giving out everything I could think of, and then I had no more um, things to give. And I just felt like, oh, I forgot this part. I really wanted to give him something. So I ran up to my kuti and down, and as we were trying to you know get everybody up to that um, room, and all I had left were some cough drops. <laughs> really, it was like, you know, and it was so awful, like I felt like, oh, this isn't good enough. And I put it in this little, nice little bag, and I brought it, I, I was, the whole time I was sitting there, I was like, oh no, I wish I had more to offer. And um, toward the end of this meeting, I went up and I offered him these cough drops, and he made such a big deal He talked for 45 minutes about these cough drops. <laughs> you know, and this is the thing, the total feeling of inadequate, you know, work, but not a good present, you know, just he deserves so much more. And how, you know, like giving, you know, a, a, a monastic medicine, like that's like the best gift you can give a monastic and just it was so again it's just like we forget we forget the simplicity of the power of giving anything you know and it's like that that losing touch this is what basho even in kyoto i long for kyoto we know that joy isn't that far away if we're simple enough. It's like, I can guarantee you, if somebody brought some popcorn in here right now, and we could eat popcorn, we would be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you really don't like popcorn. But it's like, what happens when you get quiet, and you have enough space, and you're not filling the space with so much distraction, you get to appreciate just life as it is, it, without, you know, all this extra stuff. And the, the word for um, begging ball in Japanese means just enough. And it's such a powerful teaching. It's like the Buddha, even though we're not monastics, the begging ball symbolizes being completely dependent on lay people. A, a monastic cannot go through a day without having to have a lay person give them food. They can't. They can't store anything. Now this is a system the Buddha set up, and the lay people are completely dependent on the monastics for their source of their spirituality. And they value it. Like, and so it's, we can't, we're not trying to repeat this, but it's just to get a sense that we don't know what it would be like <laughs> to, you know, the, when you walk into a school in Burma, there's little monklets and nunlets. You grow up with the monastics, and you would have grown up with the Sayadaw, you would have known his humanity, you would have known his strengths and weaknesses. You would have played in the nunnery, you would have played in the monastery. Very, very different. But they have a powerful relationship. And so the same for us with our life. It's like a day of our life or one breath. Is that breath just enough? It's that, it's that shift in attitude always. Is that, is that loneliness enough? Probably it's more than enough. You know, to really get in touch with, to really learn from. What we do is we not only shift it from <laughs> just enough to like the loneliness is permanent and we're going to die of it. 
You know, it's like we, we have this very young way of relating to emotion, of course, because we have never learned how to be mindful of them. But uh, with difficult emotion, one of the first things we need to be doing is going, it's impermanent. It's impermanent. It's impermanent. It's impermanent. And then again, it's impermanent. If it's really a karmic knot, then the nature of a karmic knot is to feel like it's permanent and that we feel like we're going to die of it. It's that intent. Or close to that. So when we take a step, it's like that sense, sometimes, we can't force this, but it's that sense of that that is just enough. And when we stand up, if you're really with that process, it's just enough. I like this um, poem by Li Po because it describes our ambivalence about this quiet. It's called, I looked all over the mountain for the monk, but not finding him, I wrote this. <laughs> and remember, it's metaphorical. I looked all over the mountain for the monk, but not finding him, I wrote this. Path of stones goes up beside Cinnabar Creek. Pines like a gate shut and moss and lichen in the shade, with bird tracks on the closed-in stairs. No one there to open the meditation hall, so I peek in the window and see a white prayer whisk hanging on the wall, growing the dust of the world. It draws a vain sigh from me. I want to be gone, yet I want to stay round and round. Fragrant clouds everywhere rising from the mountain and a rain of flowers from the sky. There's already an emptiness full of music and goodness. How much the more so when I hear the pure wail of the gibbons. It's clear I should cut free of the business of being in this world. In this place, in this way, can I know? It's clear I should cut free of the business of being in the world. In this, in this place, in this way, can I know? So I'm saying that that's metaphorical. <laughs> You can be clear of the business of the world as you're in the business of the world. It's just a matter of how quiet you choose to be. So for example, <laughs> toward maybe in the middle of my self-retreat this year, uh, I had a lot of things happen in the bathroom. I saw the minor bird trip outside the window. And then I went in one day and just walked in, looked in the mirror, and totally effortless, like totally effortless. The first thought I had when I looked in the mirror was, I hate myself. <laughs> I mean, it was awesome. I mean, it was the effortlessness of it. It was a, it was, you know, I was so quiet, and it was just like so clear. Yeah, it was awesome. You know, and it just, um, when you're quiet, you get to see that. You get to see, oh, this is what happens when Michelle looks in the mirror. You know, it's just the conditioning. And then it was like, for really, I think the first time, there was a complete, utter, total, unconditional acceptance of that thought. Totally not buying into it, you know. So I didn't have to talk myself out of it. Didn't have to do metta to kind of compensate. Not that that would have been a problem. Not that, not that anything I'm saying would have been a problem, but it was so wonderful to see that I could just go, 
normal. That's totally okay. I totally, that's, there's no power in that thought. It had no power over me. So in other words, I want to I really emphasize this. I didn't have to get rid of that part of me. I hope you're following that. Because the part of me that said, oh, I hate myself. Instead of thinking I had to get rid of that part of me, I could see there was no need to get rid of it. There, there was no problem. Mm. It was just like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know? And just like, just quiet. No drama, no intensity. But say the next day I walked in and that happened, and say there was identification, then I would go, oh, <laughs> it's okay. You know, there might be more need for metta, compassion, and relating to that with more um, intensity. Do you see the difference? And how important it is to see that um, the power of quiet in terms of just the liberation and that feeling of being at home and at ease and content even with a thought that might be something that had caught you over and over and over. It was just like it had no weight. It had no substance. It was like, okay, the sky is blue. <laughs> the sea is green. I hate myself. Right? No, no problem. So, um, in terms of purifying intention and purifying motivation, we've already talked about how we're living in the stream of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, kind of rolling along. And the Buddha taught that there were um, eight worldly conditions and that they're, like he described them in pairs. So he described them as the way of the world. Gain, loss, praise, blame, fame, disrepute, and joy and sorrow. You know, and clearly, <coughs> you can figure out which ones are pleasant and unpleasant, right? Gain, loss, praise, blame, fame, disrepute, joy, and sorrow. And it's like, this is when you can start looking at purifying motivation, because are we really here to be with things as they are? Knowing that these are the eight worldly conditions, so that when loss happens, that we're interested in that experience, being with things as they are, or blame or criticism. You know, of course we don't like criticism, but can we be with that? Or the joy and sorrow? It's like um, the equanimity is this balance and serenity in the face of how things are. I mean, sometimes people will think that the Buddha actually being fully enlightened didn't have physical pain. But he had back pain. He had back pain until he died. In fact, I read about part of this. It's like when he, certain pains in our body have a kind of karma that will last through our lifetime. Others will disappear. But it's like getting fully enlightened had nothing to do with getting rid of that pain. And this is kind of like what's so important for us to remember. Some pain will go away, but some won't. And that that's part of life. I think it's so important to remember that um, we really <laughs> forget that fundamental truth. It's like we forget that we worry because we care. We eat because we care. You know, we get angry because we care. We want unnecessary things because we care. And that get part of the choice of choosing to get more quiet is starting to have the power, actually, to get <coughs> more in touch with that care. 
rather than what's on the surface. So when we sit down to eat, do we stay in touch with that we're doing this because we care? When we notice we're worrying about the future, can we shift from being uh, caught up in the object? It's always shifting from getting caught up in the object of the worry to checking out that we're worrying because we care. And keeping that balance of motivation between the care and being with things as they are, the equanimity. The Buddha described a care and equanimity as like two wings of a bird. Compassion, equanimity. If you don't have that <coughs> equanimity, you don't have the care isn't uh, in balance. If you don't have the care, the equanimity isn't in balance, and then the, the bird can't fly. So I'll give a great example. From when I was very young, spiritual urgency has been quite effortless for me. And because of that, I really love the practice. I love it. Um, I care about it. I care about it in myself. I care about it in other people. Um, and I had so much ambition in my practice, so much striving. Like, amazing. Probably more than I've ever seen in anybody else. You know, and it's really important to know that if you care about this, you're probably going to make effort. And sometimes that effort is going to be, you know, motivated by striving. It's not effort's fault. <laughs> you know, it's not effort's fault. People will say, oh, effort is, you know, this only effortlessness is good. Well, that's crazy. It's like effort is good, but it's like if it's motivated by striving, then it's going to backfire. Because if it's striving to get something or to get somewhere or to get rid of something, then we're further and further away from home. We're further and further away from the present and what's really happening. But the, the ambition or the striving isn't bad. It's, be, it's because we care. It's just so you, 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 you uncover it. I don't think there's any teacher that's so good at getting to you to see your ambition than Upandita. You know, he's just like you going in for an interview, and usually at the end of it, and you're working so hard, he used to say to me, <coughs> make more effort. <laughs> and it would be like, are you kidding? <laughs> you, know, like, are you kidding me? you know, and that would bring up all my striving. You know, it's just like, he meant balanced effort, I assume. <laughs> you know, but what would that do? That would just be, okay, I'm going to get a half an hour of sleep tonight. He had me on one hour of sleep. I guess that I just assumed, okay, that's not enough. I'll have less. But, you know, it took so much time for me in the face of that push uh, to find my own way. Because I already was ambitious. So I don't blame Upandita for that. A lot of people get blamed him for all that ambition. That wasn't, he didn't go into my room and say, get up. You know, he didn't go out and, to me and say, you know, go do walking now. It was, you know, I had uh, probably a five minute <laughs> interview every day. But it's like, it was my ambition that pushed me. And I don't regret it. I had to learn what they call balanced effort. And I had to learn gentleness and kindness. And, you know, it's like to find that place of listening. And you can see, you have all already experienced balanced effort. It's elusive. You have all experienced when it's effortlessness, effortless. And it's like, we get more attached to that than anything. We love it, you know, and we're so vulnerable. It's like when, when the conditions of the practice come together and there's mindfulness and energy, equanimity, and it, it's just kind of happening by itself. When, in, in my early years of practice, when that would disappear, I would just, you know, scream inside, just like, no, I love this stuff, I want that, you know, and just didn't understand that that was going to come and go and come and go and come and go. And that when, it, when you go through it, coming and going, and coming and going, and coming and going, that's how you get equanimity. 
There's no other way. You just keep going through it and going through it. It's like an apple ripening on a tree. You keep going through it, going through it, going through it, and you just learn that it's not personal. And then you stop reacting to it, and then you get more energy. And then you stop reacting to it, and you get a little more energy. And so all the resistance to that process of the energy going up and down and taking it personally, as that subsides, the mind isn't reacting so much. That's what quiet is. It's not the absence of sound. It's not the absence of thought or emotion. It's the absence of taking it so personally and reacting to it. That's what they call quiet. I'm going to read a um, quotation from Obama, and uh, it's from an article that a man wrote um, that was kind of given an unusual opportunity to travel around with him for a few days. And the result of traveling around with him for a few days was just to get uh, such a picture of how Obama really doesn't get any space. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't get quiet. <laughs> you know, he doesn't get to do what he wants. He's just on all the time. You know, and that's the, the choice he's made. And that, but this, um, this, this journalist was so flabbergasted at how it really is to live a life like that, that he asked him just before they were to part, um, he asked him what he would do if granted a day when no one knew who he was and he could do whatever he pleased. How would he spend it? And then he wrote, he didn't even have to think about it. So this is this long thing of what he said. Clearly, it was tape. So he said, when I lived in Hawaii, I'd take a drive from Waikiki to where my grandmother lived, up along the coast heading east and it take, takes you past Hanama Bay, which is near where I lived for 24 years. Uh, when my mother was pregnant with me, she'd take a walk along the beach. You would park your car. If the waves are good, you'd sit and watch and ponder it for a while. I'm going to repeat a few things that I think are important. If the waves are good, you sit and watch and ponder it for a while. You grab your car keys and the towel, and you jump in the ocean, and you have to wait until there is a break in the waves. You have to wait until there is a break in the waves. And you put on a fin, and you only have one fin. And if you catch the right wave, you cut left because left is west. Then you cut down into the tube there. You might see the crest rolling, and you might see the sun glittering. You might see a sea turtle in profile sideways, like a hieroglyph in the water. And you spend an hour out there. And if you've had a good day, you've caught six or seven good waves, and six or seven not so good waves. <laughs> And you go back to your car with a soda or a can of juice, and you sit, and you watch the sun go down. Ooh. 
being willing to see, you know, you're catching six, six maybe good ways, six maybe not so good ways. That's like really cool. Gain and loss, pleasure, pain, gain, uh, fame, disrepute, joy, sorrow. It's like, ah, that's life. So just keep remembering that as you keep going through these days of practice. Um, They're worth, all the ups and downs are like worth everything. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.